Welcome to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Domine, Dona e this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode Ot Point Twenty One A Sayings of the Savior Part One The Great Commandment. All of these Ot episodes are made to let us build our Pope Colored Glasses so we can use the same lenses when we look at history together in the main show. If you're lost, start at the beginning. Today is Trinity Sunday, the third in a seven-solemnity stretch from mid-May through late June this year. Considering there are, at present, a grand total of 17 solemnities per calendar year in the Universal Liturgical Calendar, having seven in the span of a month and a half is a pretty solid stretch. So this is a busy season for me. Anyways, This episode continues our rosary-themed tour of the Second Testament, a.k.a. the New Testament, and it begins what will probably be our longest reflection on a mystery, the third luminous mystery of the rosary, the proclamation of the kingdom. Considering our last mystery took longer for me to go through with you than it would have taken to just recite two out of four of the Gospels, the fact that I'm warning you about the overall length of this mystery should honestly scare you off. Or, perhaps, you feel like you might as well be a completist. After all, if you've listened to everything so far, it would have taken you less time to binge-listen the entire Second Testament. And, considering I expect another dozen mysteries after this one, not to mention the 86 more chronological episodes on the history of the papacy I promised after that, and the fact that I still plan to start hopping around and looking at different related topics after that... I absolutely plan to comfortably exceed the whole length of the full Bible on this show. Add to that Cardinal Numbers, a second, daily show, on what things look like slightly further down the organizational ladder, which is launching, as a reminder, June 29th. With all that, I plan to exceed even the length of the broader canon of our friends in the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church, even though they don't seem to actually know the full word count there themselves. I will die doing this, and I will die happy, thankful to you all for listening, and I'm also hoping my kids and their kids and your kids will continue to get something out of this after I'm gone. As you might have noticed, I am stalling, mainly because this is another tricky section of the show. I want to summarize the teachings of Jesus, but surely I can't improve on them, so aren't they already the right length and the right context already? Shouldn't I just be telling you to read and study the Bible? Well, I mean, yeah, sure. There's definitely a case to be made for that view. It's a good case. And I'm definitely not here to direct anyone away from the Word of God. Go, read the Gospels instead of listening to this. And yet, here you are, and here I am, having promised to do Catholic worldbuilding with you, and I can hardly deliver on that promise while skipping the core of it. 
the teachings and words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, though I'm by no means qualified, I pray that the Holy Spirit qualifies and guides me here. Jesus was very much a challenging figure, and that fits because even in the infancy narratives, we saw Simeon prophesying that he would be a sign of contradiction. Also, in the wider world, there's a surprising amount of disagreement on what folks fundamentally think Jesus thought. So, in the end, I am prepared for folks to disagree with me, perhaps strongly, as I go through this upcoming section of our overview. I always think it's appropriate to be upfront about your relevant views and natural inclinations, so I said way back in episode zero that I don't naturally have a conservative bone in my body. I think it's time I got more specific about that, so I'm going to call out Servants of God Dorothy Day and Catherine Doherty of the Catholic Worker and Madonna House, respectively, as people I particularly admire. That'll give you an idea of my personal perspective, and it's hard to be sure, frankly, how much of that is my natural disposition and how much of that is the gospel. I do know that every time I engage with the gospels, they speak to me. Of course, the words that speak most powerfully are the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the gospels are full of his words, as we've seen from our Miracles episodes lately. We'll be focusing on those words as the core of this mystery, as the third luminous mystery is the proclamation of the kingdom, and ultimately, proclaiming the kingdom, and how to access it, is the purpose of Christ's words, and of life in general. To avoid accusations of cherry-picking, and to make sure you're not missing anything, the words of Jesus rightly have a central place in Catholicism, well, we're going to spend a substantial amount of time here, going through the parables and sayings more or less like we did with the miracles, and whatever of Jesus' words we don't cover directly in the coming episodes will be described in a future supplemental episode. Additionally, by the end of our rosary-themed tour of the Second Testament, the show notes will have called out every bit of the New Testament for you to read along and reflect on. No cherry-picking here. I should also note, just as background in case anyone is deciding to start their overall podcast journey with this mystery, most of the sayings of Jesus are recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of those being a self-contained narrative of Jesus' life. So, if you hear me dropping those names, that's what I'm referring to. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of similar content, as we'll continue to see, and those are called the Synoptic Gospels. So, that's what's up there. Obviously, our focus on completeness, especially regarding the sayings of Jesus, will give us plenty of opportunities to hear our voice of Jesus, but I must confess that Isaac, um, our traditional voice of Jesus for this show, recently spoke with me, told me to go forth and baptize all nations, and then ascended into heaven and was hidden by a cloud. Or he just let me know he needs a hiatus. You pick. Either way, for now, I'll fill in as the voice of Jesus, and we can all look forward to our vocal Jesus' return in glory, though we know not the day nor the hour. If you pick up the Bible and just read it cover to cover, the very first words of the Savior are, quote, Let there be light. End quote. Okay, maybe not exactly, but I figure I might as well note that from a Christian perspective, 
and I cannot emphasize that qualification enough, so I'm going to repeat it more slowly and emphatically. From a Christian perspective, the First Testament, often colloquially called the Old Testament, it predicts Jesus every step of the way. And in another bold claim, the vast majority of Christians hold that being part of the Trinity, that threefold personhood of the one God, Jesus has been around since the beginning of time. While there's certainly more than one single reason that's the consensus theology of the vast majority of Christians today, the fact that Jesus wasn't simply a creature, therefore inferior to the Father, was a major point of emphasis in the Council of Nicaea, the first ecumenical, ecumenical meaning universal, Council of the Church in 325 AD. There were dissenters from this, called Arians, Nothing to do with the Nazis, this is A-R-I-A-N, the racial thing is spelled with a Y, and just for the record, Nazism, fascism, and totalitarianism in general are bad. Anyways, sure, we could say that the whole First Testament is about Jesus. And really, with our Pope color glasses, that's basically the lens. But I'm not going to dwell on that today. Because, dang it, I'm not going to start us back to Genesis, when we fought hard for years to get where we are. The first words of Jesus in the Second Testament, often called the New Testament by people being less uh, finicky than myself, those words are found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. End quote. The context here is that John the Baptist found it odd that Jesus was asking him to baptize him. But I mean, come on. You're John the Baptist. It's, it's your thing. Do it. And so he did. Baptizing Jesus. And then we're told, moments later, the heavens opened up, and the same voice that had said, Let there be light, at the start of creation, now said, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. End quote. Of course, those paying close attention may note that even without counting the First Testament, we have words from Jesus that are chronologically earlier than this bit. After all, we have words from the child Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Luke. How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? The Greg says... Ah, King James Version. Never change. Anyways, that bit from the finding of Jesus in the temple, so we discussed that in detail already in episode 0.18, that did indeed come earlier chronologically than the Matthew bit, but I think everyone's eyes will glaze over completely if I take either a fully chronological or a fully as-ordered-in-scripture approach to the sayings of Jesus. Chronology worked all right for the miracles, but there is simply too much content in the sayings of Jesus for us to take that same approach here. Plus, I wouldn't want to make you feel like you were in a Groundhog Day scenario by rehashing the same approach for a similar sort of analysis. Instead, I think it's going to be best to take a more thematic approach here, grouping parallel texts like we did with the miracles. Yes, we're going to have more synoptic roundup! But not stressing the chronology so much as the emphasis. But before we say goodbye to chronology and we enter the world of perennial wisdom and words that speak timelessly to our day, 
I do want to give a shout out to the Infancy Gospel of Thomas for our earliest quote of Jesus on the timeline. Because in that bit of fanfic, he's younger, five years old, when he turns clay birds he had made into real birds with the simple cinematic word, go, which is a really cool scene. Of course, in the immediate next scene, he starts murdering children he doesn't like. Huh, biblical apocrypha, you sure are a trip. Speaking of trips, if we go even further afield, we've actually got quotes from the infant Jesus, kind of, sort of, though by definition, if you can talk, are you really an infant? Etymology says no. Either way, it's a stretch to call what the infant of Prague says a Jesus quote, but you all know I love a good stretch when we're wandering around like this. The infant of Prague is a specific statue of Jesus that was probably made in 14th century Spain, but is first properly documented in 1556 in, you guessed it, Prague. The statue is said to have told a priest, quote, Have pity on me, and I will have pity on you. Give me my hands, and I will give you peace. The more you honor me, the more I will bless you. End quote. Just taking the talking statue part as a given for argument's sake, there are still major issues here. Does a statue of infant Jesus count as infant Jesus? Does the fact that the statue itself was over 200 years old at this point impede things? Should we be counting the time since Jesus' birth, rather than the statue's depicted age, or the time since the creation of the statue, thus making this a quote from the 1556-ish year old Jesus? So many questions. At least we know why many folks like to play dress-up with the infant of Prague and process around with it. For what it's worth, just as a general reminder, Catholicism asks a number of things of Catholics, but believing every popular tradition is not a specific requirement. I personally will admit I find the Infant of Prague stuff incredible in the least flattering sense. No insult intended towards those who sincerely believe. It is amusing, though, so that's a plus. Even the stuff like the rosary is optional, stemming from private revelation as opposed to public revelation, a.k.a., you know, the Bible. Of course, we don't now need to hunt for quotations from images of fetus Jesus to top the infant of Prague, though if we were looking for those, I'd check in traditions connected to the visitation. But it would be futile, because, as previously noted, Catholic teaching says Jesus was around before the Incarnation, so then we'd just figure out how to top that by rummaging around the First Testament like I discussed earlier. A much more straightforward chronological search would be trying to figure out which words of post-incarnation Jesus were earliest recorded, and therefore, one would suppose, most reliably recorded, if you're the skeptical sort. Certainly, much ink has been spilled on this, because it's only much more straightforward than traditions of making statues in theory. In practice, it's something of a jumble, with material from the Gospel of Mark, or, if you believe in it, the mysterious Q source that Matthew and Luke draw from, those are the leading candidates, Mark and Q. We talked a bit about Q back in Op.14, when I was giving a brief review of the scholarship on the origins of and relationships between the Gospels. In the end, our Pope-colored glasses bring clarity, at least clarity enough for our purposes, by giving the Gospels equal authority as the Word of God. 
As far as the Pope-colored view is concerned, if it's in the canonical Gospels, Jesus said it. I don't know I'd go that far if left to my own devices, but I'm willing to go along with that, especially since it lets us get on with the show. There is an obvious starting point for when we look at what Jesus wants us to do. The Great Commandment. And, yes, my friends, we're starting to look at the moral teachings of Jesus on truly the right foot, since the Great Commandment is described in all three Synoptic Gospels, meaning it's time for a Synoptic Roundup! Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The Greg says... All right, you've got to start somewhere. And loving God is a start. Ultimately, it's something that's going to be with you the whole way. And that, indeed, is from the Law of Moses. It's Deuteronomy 6.5. Also, note that the asker is presented as testing Jesus with this question. Context given earlier in the chapter makes it clear that Jesus is responding to attempted entrapment. Quote, The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. End quote. Mark has a friendlier subtext, where the questioner just wants to hear more from the learned Jesus. Gospel of Mark One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The Greg says... Note that Mark's version also has the Shema, that's the Hear, O Israel, prologue, a.k.a. Deuteronomy 6.4. Of course, these sections are actually only the beginning, because in both tellings, Jesus actually goes on, in Matthew saying, quote, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. End quote. Well, Mark has, quote, The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. End quote. The love your neighbor as yourself comment is also from the Torah. Specifically, Leviticus 19.18. Mark also has a nice denouement for us to consider. So, here's the next part of that. Gospel of Mark. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The Greg says... Luke's account here starts off closer to Matthew's version, describing the questioner as testing Jesus and emitting the Shema, though in a new twist, Luke shows Jesus turning the question around, allowing the scholar to answer his own question. Also, while Matthew cuts off abruptly after the answer, 
Luke takes a page from Mark's book here and has a follow-up conversation, including one of Jesus' famous parables, the first of many we'll be covering. A two quick terminology refreshers. First, since it's been a long time since we saw any Levites, they're members of the tribe of Levi dedicated to temple service. If it helps you to think of them as deacons, you can do that, even though that's not a very accurate comparison, it'll probably get you a rough approximation on par with the average Catholic's level of understanding. Also, Samaritans are those from the north of Israel, who claim to be descended from the ancient kingdom of Israel as members of the lost tribes that got carted off to Assyria when all that went down in the 8th century BC. We actually did come across Samaritans fairly recently with the ten Samaritan lepers, only one of whom was apparently grateful for Jesus' healing. Now, don't spoil it if those preliminary definitions are enough clues for you to guess today's parable. Let's go ahead and check out Gospel of Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. The Greg says, Ah, the good Samaritan. It's a strong candidate for most famous parable. I'm not sure how I'd confirm that, but when I asked Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History what the most famous parable was, it was her guess. And when I googled the most famous parable, I came across it as the top answer in a Quora question. So sure, why not? It's at least up there. One modern shout out to this uh, parable that you come across from time to time is uh, the concept of Good Samaritan laws, where basically if someone is trying to help someone else, they get a bit of extra leeway in terms of protection from lawsuits and so forth because they're trying to help someone else out. Jesus' teachings and parables have a challenging streak to them, and the Good Samaritan is no exception. The religious authorities are cast in a negative light, and keep in mind, Jesus is telling this parable 
directly and personally to such an authority, and the traditional enemy Samaritan is shown in a favorable light. Jesus isn't pulling any punches here. Who is my neighbor? Everyone, and no matter what your religious credentials might be otherwise. I don't want to gloss over an interesting detail here, one that helps emphasize the connections and tensions in our four books of source material. Remember, the Good Samaritan only appears in Luke's account. Matthew and Mark omit it. On the other hand, we do have a different story involving a foreigner in those Gospels that Luke omits, namely, the exchange between the woman with the demon-possessed daughter, whom Jesus appears reluctant to intervene on behalf of since she is a foreigner, and he states he was, quote, sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, end quote. She persists, and God incarnate doubles down in an apparently racist way, saying, quote, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, end quote. That is a direct quote, common to both Matthew and Mark, and it is an uncomfortable one. I'm not here to gloss over uncomfortable things, which is why this is the second episode in a row I've drawn attention to the exchange. That, and it's relevant to two episodes in a row, since it is part of a miracle account, because, after all, Jesus does yield to the mother's faithful persistence, and he heals the child. And it's also a significant contrast to the parable of the Good Samaritan in tone. So, why does Luke have the Good Samaritan, while Matthew and Mark apparently get a racist Jesus? Is racist Jesus the reality, since it's two verses one? Well, no. Whether you've got Pope-colored glasses on or not, the takeaways aren't actually contradictory here, because Jesus yields to the mother's persistence in both Matthew and Mark, thus winding up on the Good Samaritan side of things. Without applying any piety, you could argue that Jesus simply learned something from this interaction with the determined mother. After all, that exchange happens before the greatest commandment exchange we're discussing. But we've got Pope-colored glasses we're wearing, and apparently racist Jesus is more of a problem when you've got those on, because, theologically speaking, Jesus is God and so does no wrong, and has nothing to learn. Or rather, learning is a tricky concept to apply to him, since in his divinity, he knows all already, but in his humanity, not so much. The hypostatic union is in play here, and so things get more complicated than we can get into here if we want to get anywhere. Suffice to say, the most popular pious interpretation here is not that Jesus learned a lesson from the woman, but rather that Jesus was doing some sort of test or had some sort of higher plan behind these initial refusals. In other words, it's the, look guys, I know he literally called her a female dog, but I'm sure it's not as bad as it looks, defense. I admit that's not the most convincing defense I've ever come across, and I know that, for example, Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney has pointed to the exchange as a sign that Jesus, being fully human, initially had some ugly tendencies as part of his humanity, understanding this as a learning experience. Link to that in the show notes. Why not? The Syrophoenician, or Canaanite, woman Depending on which evangelist you ask, it varies. Uh, she isn't named in the Bible, but she does get a name in a 3rd century-ish homily falsely attributed to Pope Clement, that name being 
Justa, and apparently her similarly unnamed daughter's name was Berenike, according to that same extremely dubious source. Also, shout out to future Cardinal Numbers content, yeah, of course, they're tied to Simon Magus, because everyone is. Anyways, in one way or another, in the end, in all Gospels, Jesus does wind up crossing ethnic lines and beginning that marked contrast with old-school ethnicity-based Judaism that results. If Christianity had continued on as a strictly ethnic thing, history would have been quite different. Of course, I did just make reference to all Gospels, and I haven't actually said anything about the Gospel of John in this whole discussion. What's the deal with that? Well, fundamentally, it's high time I told you a secret. John has nothing that directly parallels those passages we've been discussing. Remember, synoptics, for our purposes, means read together. And while I do intend to cover Jesus' teachings from John soon, simply put, John isn't one of the synoptics, and so we won't be reading his gospel together with them. Now that we're past the miracles, John's just too difficult to fit smoothly into the kind of comparative analysis I've decided to subject you to. For now, just know that John is temporarily set aside, so we can try to make the best sense we can of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll have some takeaways and comparison points that we'll loop John in with eventually, but at the end of the day, the reality is there are literally no sayings of Jesus that made it into all four Gospels. They're that different. That's not to say that some of the synoptics don't have parallels to John. There are direct quotes that do match up very well, um, especially between John and Luke. Anyways, that's a good stopping point for this first part. In our next episode, we'll take a look at another strong contender for the central core message of Jesus' moral teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe on the Plain. The Sermon on the Place noted for its relative elevation, and whatever else we can fit in. We should be able to cover more ground now that all the preliminaries for this mystery have been covered. Then again, there's a lot to get into in that elevation-specific sermon or those sermons, or whatever. We'll get into it. And you won't have to wait long, as the next solemnity, Corpus Christi, is Thursday, traditionally, or perhaps Sunday observed, but I'm only going to release it once, I'll release it Thursday. Thank you for listening. Thank my family for putting up with me and with this. God bless you all. <laughs>